Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law, and with me, as always, is my compatriot, Ellie Mistal. Pretty suicidal today, Joe. How are you? I I understand that the death of Roger Ailes has hit you pretty hard, but uh, hopefully you'll be able to persevere. Yeah, and so welcome back to the show. Uh, we've had a couple of weeks here off, and uh, we're ready to jump in and have a conversation about the next step for a lot of law students who are just graduating this week. But first, I guess Ellie's going to complain for a few minutes, and then we'll you know, move past that and talk about the law. I mean, I, I started off this morning fully prepared to celebrate uh, the death of Roger Ailes. Um, um, what, a, what an amazing time in this country when a person who's responsible for so much bad finally goes down. Um, but unfortunately, as soon as I opened my computer, I saw that uh, Betty Shelby, the uh, cop in Oklahoma who shot Terrence Crutcher in the back on a highway in broad daylight while being filmed by a helicopter, um, walked. She yeah. was acquitted of manslaughter. Yep. I, I like this segment to be somewhat funny and, and, and no, somewhat... You, uh, you, you, you rarely do. I, I, have, I, have nothing, I have nothing to say. I don't know how this is allowed to keep happening to use a Trumpism. Well, I mean, I think it's very easy, and that's a thing that I, I noticed, too. I mean, the, there was some uh, legal expert uh, sent out a press release about it, and I think the analysis that he gives is, is right, and that's actually what's kind of troubling about it. Uh, his analysis was that when you really think about you know, the nature of the criminal justice system and things, convictions requiring beyond a reasonable doubt— you put yourself in a position where reasonable doubt becomes a fairly easy standard for these folks to keep meeting because we have, rightly or wrongly, probably rightly, the idea that policing is a dangerous job. There's a position by which they can always utilize the argument that they had a reasonable suspicion that it was dangerous and that's what justified what they did. The problem is, See, of course, taken to its logical conclusions, that ultimately says anyone ever in the position of being a police officer has the ability to shoot on instinct, which is a terrifying level. But it's the logical conclusion of the way in which we've set everything up. Juries, and especially white juries, do not apply the reasonable part of the standard to the equation. They no, have to that's be reasonably afraid of their life. And, and No, 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 no. There, no, is no, no. there is no effort to apply any reasonable man standard. No, nor should they. It's the opposite of that. The reasonable is that there has to be some reasonable doubt that it wasn't. No, you're talking about you're talking about right. reasonable doubt in terms of conviction. Yes. I'm saying that the standard for police officers is supposed to be they are reasonably afraid for their life for whatever. And I'm saying that the juries refuse to apply a reasonableness standard to the cops. So right. It's well, okay it, for the cops to be unreasonably afraid um, and then shoot people to death. Right. I mean. That's certainly a, a take. I just don't, I don't necessarily know that's true. I think that the actual problem is more fundamental than that, that when you create a situation where a job is inherently dangerous, 
by its nature, then you create a situation where reasonable doubt will always flow the direction of justifying, you know, violent reaction, which is a more fundamental problem than anything that that you're talking about. I think it's a more fundamental problem with the way in which we deal with misconduct in jobs that we have determined are inherently dangerous and that there should be some other way in which we look at those to avoid that because so long as we continue to apply the same rules to that it will always end up this way is more the more where i'm pointing out well we're not going to solve it today and i'll just try to you know not get shot tomorrow yes uh good thing uh good thing to try to do um always always be careful you have the luxury of not having to come into the office which is always a, a scary increases my survivability by not having yeah. to to leave yeah. my home well all right well let's continue this discussion in a minute first let's take a quick break to uh hear from some sponsor stuff and uh we'll be right back bring me a beer i bet you didn't think about running a business when you were in law school but now that you have your own practice you're constantly looking for tips on marketing accounting practice management and so much more I'm Christopher Anderson, and you can get expert business advice on my podcast, The Unbillable Hour, found on LegalTalkNetwork.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, we're back. Ellie presumably has gotten a beer. Well, so we're going to move now to the to the bar exam. Uh, so whatever you want to... Something add. else that tried to kill me. Yes. Yeah, so however you want to think about this, the worst test ever, the last exam you'll ever take for most of you, uh, whatever euphemism you want to have for it, the bar exam is kind of the, the last major hurdle in the quest to become a lawyer. And for those of you who've graduated and are practicing lawyers, you know it and probably think back on it with some level of fear and and trepidation. Others who listen to us, uh, folks who are in undergrad, pre-law folks, or we, of which we know we have several listeners uh, from our decision series a couple weeks ago, or if you're in, in law school now and just haven't quite reached the point where you're going to have to worry about this exam, we thought we'd talk a little bit about how the bar exam operates, what's going on with it, uh, kind of what up with the bar exam. So our guest today is James Mullen from Law School HQ, which is a new site. Uh, it used to be Bar Exam Stats, which was a great resource of everything quantitative you might want to know about the bar exam. So welcome to the show, James. Thank you very much, Joe, for having me. Appreciate it. So Law School HQ, you kind of moved on from just focusing on the bar exam and kind of have a broader vision now. Yeah, yeah. So about I don't know, five or six months ago, I was taking a look at the website and as much fun as it is studying the bar exam results and the trends and everything that are going on, you start to realize there's a larger picture at play. You have the, mm -hmm. uh, the ABA statistics that talk about the entrance as well as the job statistics that are going on. And you start realizing there's a larger picture that you want to start capturing. So figured that we would expand the website, start to take some of that data that the ABA is so gracious in putting up on their website and start analyzing it and um, really seeing what's going on. So the bar exam, it's obviously different from state to state uh, as each of these entities have their own way of figuring out how they're going to license attorneys, but it might be kind of coming together. There's this UBE thing. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, my hope is that we ultimately get to a national UBE. I think that uh, New York, right, which had their first UBE last July, right, so the second one was this February, I think they did it right. You have adoption of the uniform bar exam, which is a national exam, right, that has, I think it's three multi-state essay exams, um, a multi-state performance test, and they adopt the 200 questions for the multi-state bar exam, right, the the MBE portion. Right. Um, and then what I love about New York is they added a you know, 50 question subset that's held on a different date that focuses on just New York law, right? So you're able to have the advantage of taking the national exam. You can try to get into other states, but New York still is able to kind of maintain their, their area, right? Ensuring that attorneys are going into the state and being able to practice law under New York law. So even while you agree with that, with the move towards a more universal and, and national bar exam, do you still support different states kind of barring attorneys differently? And do you still think that there's a good reason why I should have to get barred in New Jersey, even if I'm already barred in New York? Yes and no. So I was thinking about this a couple of days ago, right? When we, we're one of the oldest professions um, in the world, right? Not the oldest, but yes. One of the oldest. You know, there's, there's, <laughs> there's one other out there, right? <laughs> Um, but back in the day, right, in early, I don't know, 17, 1800s, you had these different jurisdictions with different forms of government and information was very difficult to get a hold of, right? So you wanted to have people that only knew New York law, only knew Mississippi law, only knew California law as a way to, you know, to make sure that they are competent to practice versus today's age where, you know, you can do research across the board, right? Even though the different laws of the state might be specific to that state, we now have access through Westlaw, LexisNexis, Google Scholar, Justia, all of the different websites, right, that make this information freely available. It's really transformed how law is practiced. So now we should be moving towards a national exam because at the end of the day, right, as attorneys, we're taught to take a massive amount of information and solve a problem and distill it down. And that's what we can do no matter what jurisdiction we're in. Mm -hmm. I think it's also important in terms of uh, uh, job placement for attorneys that, you know, the more states that they're barred in and to the extent that you can be kind of barred nationally, the more opportunities you have to get jobs in places that, you know, potentially have a real underservice of lawyers. You know, we have a lot of attorneys who are kind of excited and eager to work in big law um, on the coast or in major markets, um, but we have a real lack of service um, in some of the tertiary and certainly the rural markets. Um, mm-hmm. National accreditation is one way to combat that problem. Absolutely. Completely agree. Yeah. Now, so this has been a trend that's not been universal, but it is starting to pick up steam. How many states now are utilizing this uniform bar exam in some form or another? Oh, I believe at last count it was about 23. But when you look at the overall population, it was, I think, closer to a third of people in the U.S. are now taking the UBE. New York being the biggest at about 10,000 a year or so of the 50 or so people that take them every year. So we're moving towards a national accreditation you know, as things go, are there going to be states, I assume there's going to be some states that are a little more uh, protective of their, you know, parochial control over their own licensing and who will be holdouts. But uh, 
Are there any like aggressive holdout states out there that you just don't think are going to move until their their own bar exam is pulled from their cold dead hands? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd probably put California up there, which is where I'm from. Uh, yeah, you know, we have I think something like over two hundred thousand active lawyers at any given time. So we just went from what three days down to two, and the other state, which I think would be, I believe it's Louisiana, um, ah. because they aren't they the only state that does not offer the MBE because they have was it common law, I believe. I mean, when I was younger, they were doing, uh, they were still doing the Napoleonic Code down there. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, so. My next question about California, you said that they moved from three days to two. Uh, that was a big deal when they did that, first of all, because it moved them more into line with not only what other states do, but you know, basic human decency of not mm. making somebody do this for three straight days. But like at the time, I certainly thought that this was a sign that California was starting to wise up, that they couldn't keep doing their crazy shenanigans and had to join the rest of uh, the rest of polite society. But you're saying that ultimately they may not have uh, given up their iron grip. Well, yeah, and the reason for that is because you know one of the things if you're always taught in law school, at least here in California, is that California is different when it comes to law, right? Because we we test on a lot of subjects that are California specific, like you know, matrimonial law, like community property and stuff like that, which I anticipate that the California bar is going to want to continue to maintain, right? They are continuing to do um, just stuff that's not typically covered on the UBE. So at least for some time, unless they come up with a, a similar solution that would be to New York's, I just anticipate that they want to continue offering something that's going to be very California specific because they have so many differences between that and what like the national law is. Can we talk a little bit about why uh, so many people are terrible at passing the California bar? <laughs> oh. yes. For those who haven't been following along on Above the Law, the February results um, were recently uh, released. Uh, February, obviously, um, if in case you don't know, the, the passage rate for February is always a little bit worse than it is for July. But the passage rate for February 2017 in California was 34.5%, which is embarrassing. And, you know, scores in states around the country, um, passage rates, I should say, in states around the country seem to be on a downward trend. Why do you think that is? So I think we're actually seeing something that was set up several years ago. So if you notice, if you look at the statistics, like the entrance statistics that the ABA publishes, the average, I think, LSAT rate and uh, GPA rates, they've slightly gone down a little bit in recent years. And I think you're starting to see that transpire over into the bar exam side of things. Also, when you think about it, right, it used to be back when I joined law school that um, back in 2007, right before the market crashed, you're looking at a lot of attorneys making a lot of money, right, and uh, huge, huge salaries. And so you go to law school thinking you're going to, you know, you're going to win the race, right? You're going to make it big. And I think what we're seeing is more and more students are looking at this and going, okay, it's going to cost me anywhere between $150,000 and $200,000 in debt, and I'm not guaranteed a salary of at least $160,000 a year. Is it worth 
taking that risk going to law school. I think you're starting to see some people who are saying it'd be better to go, you know, get in a different type of education through either, uh, you know, a master's uh, degree or some, something else. Look, I'm a big believer that this is the brain drain finally catching up um, with the legal profession. As you rightly point out, LSAT scores have been going down. And while I don't believe that the LSAT is a particularly good predictor on how good of a lawyer you're going to be, I think it's an excellent predictor of how good you are at taking tests. And so I think it is not at all surprising that as LSAT scores tick down, bar passage rates um, will also tick down. And it really goes back to the schools who are willing to admit these people with low LSAT scores not being able to overcome uh, kind of poor test taking, you know, poor ability to take tests and yet taking these people's money for three years anyway. Yeah. Actually, Ellie, I actually have a couple of statistics up on my screen right now about Charlotte and Miami. Some Just some of the things that I, I started taking a look a couple days ago at what did entrance statistics and like the matriculants to the full-time program look like back in 2010, 2011 versus what it looks like today. Uh-huh. It's, it's pretty interesting. In some cases, you're seeing anywhere between a 30 to 50% drop at some schools as far as who's now going into the full-time program. Yeah, I, look, the law schools have been have been talking recently about how their application numbers are finally starting to tick up. Um, but the brain drain, uh, I think, hits on both sides. And, that's, and, and so on the one hand, like you're pointing out, I think you're getting people with, again, worse test-taking skills um, applying to and matriculating into law schools. On the other hand, as you've alluded to, people with the kind of the best scores and the best test takers are thinking about other things that they can do with their career besides uh, pursuing a career in law. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So one thing that talking about sticking with this discussion of how law schools have have changed, I liked the way Ellie you made the connection back to the LSAT because I think it's important to make the connection between the bar exam and that LSAT as opposed to the intervening years of law school because as we all know, the bar exam has nothing to do with anything you learn in those three years of law school. Right. <laughs> yeah. Which now on that front. Is that a problem, a more fundamental problem that needs to be addressed? Like whether it's that the bar exam should more closely track what law school does or law school should more closely track a bar prep course. Either way, what possible professional licensing exists other than the bar exam where people are tested on something very different from anything they've actually learned? It would be like a medical licensing exam having nothing to do with human medicine. It'd be like the veterinarian's exam you have to pass to get your (laughs) doctor's license. I mean, but is that something that we should look at? Like, fundamentally, a curriculum change, one way or the other, of whether the bar exam changes or law school changes, or is it not a huge deal that these two things don't seem to match up in any way for either of you? So... I think, yes. I think there does need to be kind of a, this fundamental shift of how we test. What are we testing on? And I think this gets into a much larger issue than just what the bar exam is, like what the pass rate is. It's not just because of what the pass rate is. But again, it goes back to the availability of information, right? So you have mm-hmm. people who are in law school today that are thinking, I want to go out and I want to change the world. I want to be a public interest lawyer, right? And I'm going to go take on all of this debt, which suddenly acts as a deterrent of whether or not they even go to law school. 
And then they're going and being tested about something that they don't necessarily want to be practicing, right? And so they want to go into a specific field, maybe serve an underprivileged area, right? Um, mm-hmm. I would love to see more more defense lawyers, right? And I don't know if the bar was testing, specific, like doing something similar to what uh, Washington does, where they have a it's a separate program from being a full blown lawyer that you can go be. I can't remember if it's called like a law clerk or something else. Yeah, where yeah, you're, I can't remember yeah. it either. Yeah, where you're focused specifically on on certain tasks that an attorney doesn't necessarily have to cover, right? So in that case, you're you're testing specific areas that an individual could serve, right, in like a public interest capacity, and not have to worry about being tested through the full program, being worried about taking on $150,000 in debt. I think that's the direction it should be going, right? Because we don't have to be generalists anymore, right? We're all going into our different little niches and everything. As is my want, I'll I'll, I'll put most of the blame on the schools. Uh, (laughs) I think that, look, it is ridiculous to me that a school is going to charge you hundreds of thousands of dollars and take three years of your time and somehow not prepare you to take the entrance exam to the profession. Right. And and we can. And so while I don't disagree with what James is saying about what that entrance exam should be, the fact is it's been the entrance exam for a very, very long time. Schools have ample opportunity to know that the end of the of the road, their students are going to be required to take this test. Not preparing their students to succeed at that test is a complete failure on behalf of the schools. Obviously. You know, I'm, I'm always about the two-track system, right? There are certain schools that are out there that are not training people to pass the bar, and all of their students are going to pass the bar at, anyway, right? We know the schools. You're going to go to that school. You're going to take your, your bar prep course. Things are going to be fine for you. But for schools, you know, that are not in that tier, for schools that have a significant chance of half of their class not passing the bar, a third of their class, you know, not passing the bar, that's on the school, to bring their students up to the level so at the very least after three years you can pass the freaking entrance exam yeah i mean it it does seem as though a professional school would have some closer tie to making sure people can practice the profession and part of this is part of this is schools but you know part of this also is who becomes a legal academic not all the time are they people who've actually practiced i mean we've created over the last several years a track toward becoming a legal academic that often involves going to clerk for a couple of years and then coming back in, congratulations, you're an assistant professor somewhere. And to the extent that that's the legal academy, not universally by any stretch, but if that's the legal academy of a large swath of the legal academy, then you've got people who actually aren't in a position to do much about telling you how actual practice works. Right, but they're in a position to tell you how to pass the frickin' bar. I mean, Potentially. I mean, I don't know. We all know what happened to Sullivan when she had to take the California bar out there. Why do we always have to drag her name through the proverbial mud? Is I actually view it very differently. I think she's an excellent example because, not to throw her through the mud, I think that's an argument for why California's bar is completely ridiculous and absolutely needs to be blown up because the idea that a Supreme Court litigator who was in charge of Stanford Law School couldn't pass a bar exam was a sign not that a problem with her, but a problem with the bar exam. <laughs> right? <And> again, I mean, 
And again, you're supposed to be testing the minimum level of competence for an attorney. That's the yeah. entrance. That's the core of it, right? Not necessarily screening out people who can't pass a test. Yeah. It's a good way of putting it. This is supposed to be the minimum. Speaking of minimums, the one other story over the last few weeks that kind of wanted to chat about, I guess, was Mississippi had a also an abysmal passage rate in February, also down in the 30 percentile. We get kind of California because they have this bar exam that is unruly and is intended to be as difficult as possible for people who might be Stanford law deans. But Mississippi, what's going on there? Is that a situation of a difficult bar exam? Or is that a situation of declining standards? Like, Or is it kind of a bellwether for some of these issues that we've talked about? This is something where I'm still surprised that there was such a massive decline. Like, I remember taking a look into this several weeks ago and really trying to nail down, like, did they do anything that changed from their exam? Did they did they adopt the uniform bar exam that suddenly increased the minimum level of competence for an attorney in that state? And honestly, I've had nothing, which is which is really surprising. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, this yeah. is what I'm supposed to be tracking. So, <laughs> Yeah, it seemed like just such a weird outlier. And I, I received a lot of correspondence after I wrote about this from people who both supported my conclusions and, and who were upset about them. Uh, but even the people who were upset about them Mostly, the only thing they could say was they wanted to defend Ole Miss's law school and said, our numbers were pretty good. But even if that's the case, that means everybody else's numbers were bad. Uh, And that's still something worth noting, that a bunch of people are taking this exam and for no reason anyone can discern doing terribly on it. Mm -hmm. I would just, and I guess I'll throw this here near the end. It's a slightly akimbo point. But as a general rule, I'm not disturbed that the bar is hard, okay? Let me, let me, that's the best way of putting it, right? I actually do think there should be a barrier to entry into this profession, and that barrier should somehow try to assess an attorney's minimum competence. And I think, you know, I think we all agree that perhaps the current bar does not do a very good job of that, and and perhaps law schools aren't doing a very good job of that, and what have you. But, you know, you don't see a lot of people crying when, people can't pass their medical boards, right? You see a lot of people saying, oh, great, I'm glad that I'm not going to have that doctor. <laughs> and I do think that while law, you know, is not kind of, does not empower you to, to go into people's bodies uh, and take things out, it certainly gives you a lot of power over your clients' lives. And so I do think that having a relatively difficult, relatively serious minimum requirement entrance exam is a good thing. And I'm not immediately off put by low passage rate numbers. Does that make sense? But but there's science involved in one of them and not in the other. And I think that's a that's a big difference, right? Like I I was a litigator. I didn't really actually need I mean we're to not taught not not everybody's a surgeon. I mean there's there's not a whole lot of science involved in the guy that's giving you your Viagra pills. I I, I, I come on. I think that Obviously, doctors have more power over your life, but lawyers have quite a bit of power over their clients' lives, and I think that having strong requirements for them is is not a bad thing. Absolutely. Not necessarily these requirements, but some strong requirements. Yeah, Ellie, I was going to agree with you and just say, I mean, 
Yeah, I agree that there needs to be a level of, you know, a standard, right, that requires that you pass it. The question is, is the standard that's in place today the right standard given where technology is, given the readily available access to information, given how everybody is now going into more of a niche practice instead of a generalist role, which is what it used to be, you know, anywhere between 50 and 60 years ago. Like, look at shepherdizing, right, and how much technology has made that change, right? Like, was it 10 years ago, you used to have to go look at the books and you bill hours for that. Now you don't have to do that anymore. So that's a great yeah. point. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's different and people, while there may be some generalists in the world and there should be an exam for them, if you're going to become a commercial real estate lawyer, there's a whole bunch of stuff you don't really need to be tested on. It's really not that important for you to know the nuances of hearsay and all those exceptions. 13. Yeah. All right. Well, this was great. Thank you so much, James, for joining us and talking about the bar. For all of you listening uh, who are about to begin your bar prep courses and take the bar exam, you know, those who are about to die salute you sort of thing. Um, Good luck. Thanks for listening. And if you aren't subscribed to the podcast already, you should do that through various podcast subscripting services. And you should like it and review it and do all those things that make it more visible to other possible listeners. You should read Above the Law, obviously, but you should also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Joseph Patrice, Ellie's at L-E-N-Y-C. You should get the Legal Talk Network app so you can listen to not only our show, but all the other Legal Talk Network programs. And I think that's it. So any parting words there, Ellie? Uh, no, thanks. Thanks for listening. Uh, honestly, I just hope I'm alive for the next one. Right. Well, the next one should be a exciting one. So people want to be around for our next one because it uh, we have exciting announcements for that one. Dun, dun, dun. All right. Wait, am I getting fired? No, no, no. Quite the opposite. Um, well, because no, nobody be told like me you, about the announcement. It's going to be like your day. Yeah, no. Well, you, you did. You you're the one who told me about it. But anyway, the point is, we'll address that next time. All right. Bye, guys. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.